Welcome to our ongoing series sponsored by Catholic Church Reform International. I'm your moderator, Rini Reed. Our guest today is Thomas Doyle, who was an American Catholic priest in the Dominican Order, but he shunned the collar to fight for survivors of clergy sexual abuse. And now for more than 30 years, Tom has reviewed over a thousand clergy sex abuse cases around the world, including many parts of the world, the US, Ireland, England, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Belgium, and Brazil. Welcome, Tom. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you, thank you. You say that as a result of your lifelong research, 35 years now, that you no longer have any trust in the institutional church. Tell us what led you to that. Well, my experience. I mean, I I was, from the beginning, I was deeply on the inside. And I believed everything. And I especially believed that the bishops, the hierarchy, which ran the church, were honorable men. And then from the beginning, uh, from 1935 or 1985, uh, when this issue started to develop, it was brand new. I mean, there was no, we didn't have a game plan. We didn't have a, a, a manual on how to respond to it, uh, at least so we thought. And by we, I meant myself. And the other two guys that I was working with, Ray Mouton, who was an attorney, and um, Michael Peterson, who was a priest and a psychiatrist. So it wasn't long before I began to cognitively understand that what was going on was the beginnings of a systemic cover-up. The bishops, at least the bishops' conference leadership in the U.S., reacted in a way that stunned me. I thought they would be, uh, the, the work that, we, that the three of us did, which was compose a manual, like a long detailed book on how to handle these questions, uh, when you encountered one, we thought that that would be welcome because it was a, like a free will offering to help the church. And we were told they didn't need it because they knew everything in it. And, and the three of us were, tra- especially me, were treated with disdain by the leadership of the Catholic Bishops' Conference in the United States. And that's when I began to figure out there's something wrong here. Something stinks. And what stunk was the fact that I was witnessing, without even wanting to accept it, um, both cognitively and emotionally, a cover-up of God knows how extensive the issue was at the time. I didn't know. Uh, But the cover-up of sexual abuse of children by priests. And I couldn't think of anything worse uh, than if they all declared declared themselves vampires might might be worse. But I don't know. But this, this is what started it. And I became, I started my involvement, my public involvement, uh, not intentionally, but this document that the other two gentlemen and I um, composed ended up in the hands of the media. And because this was back in the 80s, and this was a big media issue then, 85, 86, 87, because it was, now it was known, and so people were coming forth, whereas prior to that time, they wouldn't, because they were afraid. Nobody would believe them. This is a Catholic church. you know. Nobody's going to believe us. So... Let's go back to that time. At that moment in the in the early 80s, you were serving as a canon lawyer and yeah. you were at the Vatican Embassy in Washington. So part of your job assigned by them 
was um, to have you review sex abuse cases from across the country. No, not, not really. That's not what happened. I don't know where all this stuff came from, but what happened then got, has been uh, distorted and misunderstood and intentionally, I think, or unintentionally uh, um, described in, a, in an inaccurate way. I was not assigned to do, well, actually what I, I was assigned, when the first case came in, we just, we simply got a letter from the uh, Vicar General of Louisiana, Lafayette, Louisiana, telling us that uh, it was a letter addressed to the papal ambassador, the papal nuncio, that we've had this problem with this priest who um, molested six or nine children, and so we've settled with six families. And they signed confidential agreements. So everything's under control. We're just writing you to give you this information, informational purposes only. So he passed the letter to me and he said, make a file on this, create a file and, and compose a response for my signatures, which I did. Well, that would have been it. I read the letter. It was a fairly long uh, letter that this Monsignor wrote. And I was, I gotta say, I was, um, shocked by what I read. But I found out that what he said in the letter was like 10% of the truth. The rest of it was, was more than shocking. So a couple days later, the papal nuncio received another letter from the same uh, vicar general of this diocese, the bishop's assistant, informing him that things were not quite as uh, uh, copacetic as he had previously led us to believe, because one of the families had pulled out of the agreement, refused the money, and refused to remain silent and obtained a lawyer. When they did that, the attorney that they retained filed a civil suit against the, the Diocese of Lafayette. In that civil suit, he also uh, named everybody who these people, who, who was named in the, in the uh, confidentiality agreements. The confidentiality agreements that they had to sign meant said that they would remain quiet about the priest, the bishop, the pope, etc. So this attorney turned around and he mentioned all of them in the suit. So they were all sued from the, the priest all the way up to the pope. And the media got a hold of it. The local district attorney realized that these cases were within the statute of limitations. So he filed criminal charges and then everything blew up. It all went out, went into the public. Uh, realm because of the media for the first time was not hiding it and was not playing deferential to the Catholic Church. They were publicizing it. And a very brave, um, a very astute journalist named Jason Berry wrote a four-part series for a local newspaper down there called the Times of Acadiana in which he told a story, not just about the sexual abuse, there was plenty of that, but he told a story about the priest, Gilbert Gote and about the part that has been the most horrific, which is the cover-up by the bishops. So that's how it got started. My job at that time was to uh, maintain correspondence, but I became proactive in this. And I realized this is a big problem. So these other two gentlemen and I were trying to, you know, do what we could to help the bishops do the right thing, uh, not really realizing until things developed a ways down the line that they didn't want to do the right thing. They wanted to keep it covered, covered up 
and they wanted to try to control it all. And that has been pretty much the stance since then. They're still on the defensive. They still don't fully get it. They don't know how horrific this is. And they're still trying to control what they can't control. They, they, have, they cannot control this issue. That's kaput, finished. So the three of you wrote a 90-page report. Yeah, that's it. That's what was the essence of your report? The essence of the report, it was set up in a Q&A format. And it, the idea came up when the three of us were discussing this issue. And uh, I remember speaking to a couple of bishops because I had access to bishops all the time because of my work. And I said, you know, would, would it help you guys if we, if we gave you a manual or a memo that had some points about this and how, to, how we think it should be handled? Because nobody else knew, and we didn't know much, but we, had, you know, we were at least a day ahead of the other guys. So we did. We put it together, and we had uh, the other two gentlemen I worked with, Michael Peterson, the doctor, and Ray Mutan, were both geniuses. So we had a section on civil law, canon law, a medical section, a section on, on pastoral care. And the, this thing was set up in a question and answer format, and it had attached to it several articles Dr. Peterson picked out on the nature of pedophilia, what it is, whether it's curable, how to, how to treat it, and so on. Because Gilbert Gote, the first priest, was a true pedophile. In other words, he fixated on prepubescent little boys and he had sexually abused in the hundreds. Uh, most of the sexual abuse that takes place and has taken place in the Catholic Church is not from pedophiles. It's from men uh, who are sexually attracted to young adolescent boys and girls. It's commonly called a pedophile crisis, but that's inaccurate. I prefer to use the proper terms. So, Tom, what happened when you presented your report to church authorities? Well, the... I that we were supported. I, you know, I, we had the, the papal nuncio who's now deceased, uh, Archbishop Laghi knew this was a serious problem. So he was communicating verbally to the Holy See on the phone. Um, he realized it was bad, but didn't know how bad and didn't really know how to deal with it because none of them did. So, the key, the people that had to do something or should have done something in this country were the, was the bishops' conference. They were offered this report, free will offering. We didn't say you have to take it, you know, we're selling it to you, anything like that. They rejected it. And they basically said, we don't need it because we know everything that's in it. Literally, they literally said, they said in a press conference, uh, there's no, nothing in that that we don't, we're not already aware of, and we already have policies in place to deal with sexual abuse by priests. And I will never forget, one reporter put his hand up. He says, well, can you share with us copies of those policies? So the spokesman for the bishop said, well, they're just not written down. Now, all that, the whole thing was a lie. There were no policies. They had no, all they knew how to do was try to cover themselves. That's, it was a do-it-yourself thing on a day-to-day -day basis. There was a defensive response to CYA is what it was. So the, the, what we lined up, what we gave them, they didn't need, they didn't want. Um, and as, as time went on, uh, there was a lot of media attention given to this back at that time in 1985. And the bishops realized that they would have to do or say something. 
so they had a their annual meeting, their semi-annual meeting, which took place in uh, Collegeville, Minnesota, in June of 1985. They had a one-day executive session dealing with sexual abuse by priests. Um, by executive session, it was closed to the media, closed to the public. Uh, I was not there. Dr. Peterson was not there, and nor was Mr. Mouton. And arguably, we were the three people who knew the most about this. So that's when it all started. And it, you know, it was no, there was no question that the main element of this has been the attempt by the hierarchy to keep it covered up, to minimize it, to deny it, um, to control it. And they have been uh, unsuccessful on all, on all sides. I guess on some level, that's kind of a, a, a first and natural human response. I'm looking at the Republicans in Congress right now who are going through some of the same symptoms of denial and minimizing what's going on and trying to shift the blame, devaluing the victims. So that's what happened in the church as well, just what's happening there. But has this pattern improved since the scandal has become so publicized? Is it any better than it was before? Yeah, it is better than it was before. And it's better than it was before because the the one the single the two things that 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 got this out of the shadows and out from under the massive thick blanket of secrecy that it had been covered in were the media attention which was uh invaluable i i can't i can't express how important that has been not just to those of us who are trying to make this thing better but to the victims because it's made it possible for this to become a publicly known issue. They are believed, they are supported, they're not hidden away in the shadows. And above all, uh, you know, at, at, at one time, many victims said, no one will believe us. We're talking about priests, and everybody says priests, priests don't do this. And the church, you know, powerfully covered things up. Well, those cover-up days are gone. So I think the two things that have made a change, the media and when this issue got into the civil courts, that's where changes started happening. The movie Spotlight dramatically brought this to the public. The movie Spotlight did, and it was extremely well done, and it was, I would say, 99% accurate. Um, it did. I watched it. I was at the premiere, um, and I was stunned by how accurate it was. And, of course, it took me back. I was involved in that whole deal anyway. Uh, as an expert and as a consultant before uh, the, the, the whole explosion took place in Boston back in 2001. Um, that was a, a major moment, 2002 rather, when the uh, Boston Globe published those stories. Uh, that took the thing to a whole new level. Now, since that time, you've been asked to serve as a consultant on the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Children. I'm just wondering, did you work closely with Marie Collins, who was yes. a victim herself and a member of the committee, who I, ultimately resigned out of complete frustration? I've known Marie for quite a while, and she is one of my heroes. She is one of the most competent people, not just competent women, but competent people that I know. Um, she understands this issue. She's fearless when it comes to confronting church authorities. Uh, they did a, it was a very wise move to put her on the committee. 
And I think the best thing she did was publicly quit because she realized before things were, you know, too far gone that uh, the Pope wasn't taking the strong position he should have be taking, but worse, the Curia, some of the guys in the Vatican Curia over there, the head, the cardinals, were, were stonewalling this issue. And they were stonewalling it for self-serving purposes because they didn't want any more publicity out there. They thought they could control this thing, which was totally out of their control. So Marie finally got frustrated and she quit. The, the Papal Commission is probably, it has degenerated. It's, it, had, it started off, I think there was some hope because they had some really good people on it who wanted to do some good things. Um, now it's, it's probably about useless, you know, has been. Uh, they, they reappoint people. They don't, they've, they've dropped the, the best people they had. Um, nobody's really quite sure what they do or what they're doing, but they're not making a difference anywhere in anything. Um, and that's because the, the Vatican uh, heads over, they don't want it to make a difference. So it won't, it doesn't. Now, Francis called the meeting of the bishops together uh, over this whole issue in February. And I personally was pretty disappointed in what happened and what didn't happen. But do you see anything good coming of that? Yeah, I do. Um, the only level of real success, I think, was that that meeting, and this wasn't, I don't think, clearly planned, it galvanized and brought together victims and survivors groups from all over the world. And it made it very clear to the institutional church, to the hierarchy, the popes, the bishops, and to the public, this is a worldwide problem. And it's basically the same in every country. Sexual abuse by clerics and cover up by bishops. Those are the two main issues. And so the fact that the victims got together, they presented themselves well, they had, you know, press events and so on and so forth uh, throughout the entire time the meeting was going on. The meeting itself was, they had, they got some pretty good speeches given to them by some of the outsiders that went in there and gave talks. But as far as getting the heads of the bishops' conferences together from all over the world, um, you know, the, the, one of the excuses was to educate them on the nature of sexual abuse of children. Well, look, if you're an archbishop and you're an adult male, you don't realize that an adult male or an adult female sexually violating a child is horrific. There's something wrong with you. You need to go back to Mars or wherever you came from. Uh, now that may sound harsh, but it's true. Uh, so the, that part of it was, was very disappointing, but I wasn't really personally disappointed because I didn't expect much. You know, I, I really didn't expect much to happen. And nothing, not, you know, the, the, the way the institutional church is operating, it's all with administrative bureaucratic responses. Now the Pope is trying to do some stuff on a personal level, but essentially you have this huge institution that's being um, pushed by the victim. The victims and their survivors, the survivors and their supporters, they're the ones that are, are in charge of the forward motion of this whole movement, if you want to call it that. The church isn't. You know, we're the ones determining what's happening. See, I personally don't think anything will ever change as long as the foxes are watching over their own hen houses. 
The bishops, in my opinion, cannot resolve the matter of clergy sexual abuse. There's got to be a way to bring the lay faithful into it. Uh, I, perhaps one of my disappointments was I expected tribunals to be set up um, and that the lay people would be given some sense, some position of responsibility on those tribunals throughout the world. But I have not seen that happening or even getting underway. Have you? No, it won't. It won't because you're dealing with an institution that's a monarchy. And the monarchy is run by an aristocracy and everybody in the aristocracy is a cleric. The upper levels are all bishops and cardinals. The entire Catholic Church, the one billion, I don't know, one, I think it's 1.15 billion people are run effectively by about 3,000 men who are all bishops, they're all celibate, none of them have ever had children uh, or been in relationships probably. So they're running the show and it's a kingdom. And you don't hear too many stories about monarchs relinquishing the crown uh, for a democratic institution. That's not gonna happen. I've never seen anybody with power willingly give it up. No. That won't happen, and I don't, you know, that the foxes, the bishops can't fix the problem. They think they can because they think they know everything, but they can't, and they don't know everything. And this is an issue they know very little about truly. I mean, they know a lot of factual information, but I don't think they really, most of the, the bulk of them don't really get it. Because you still, I mean, last two weeks ago, a cardinal from Africa, Peter Turkson, said, it's time to, you know, put this whole thing to bed. Well, he comes from countries where they're so homophobic that they, it's against the law to be gay. And he has supported that. So that's the kind of issues you're dealing with on that end. And the problem will be dealt with, is being dealt with, by, uh, by the church, but not the hierarchical church, it's by the people of God. Uh, well, there are enough people who are who recognize that the future of the church is in real jeopardy and they're willing to become much more proactive. I, I find that is some of the feedback that we're getting from these podcasts. And I'm just wondering if there is some way that you can recommend where people who are ready and willing and ready to jump out there can actually become part of the solution for this massive cover up that's been going on for decades. Well, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not involved in the reform of the institutional church, okay? I'm not concerned about that at all because I don't think it's reformable. Uh, change, yeah, and what I think, what I see, the only, I think, uh, element of hope that I've seen as far as the institutional church is concerned is the formation of these small, uh, some, some not so small, these intentional Eucharistic communities from which yes. that's where you're seeing the formation of the church, probably the future. They don't have bishops or popes. They don't need any of that stuff. And, and they're, they're, I've met with a lot of them. I, I've spoken at some of their meetings. They're good, decent people. They're committed. They're intelligent. They're hardworking. And they want to see something change in this area. But the change won't come from inside the institution as we know it. That is about as ridiculous as Hitler or somebody asking the Gestapo to help eliminate anti-Semitism from the Nazi regime. It ain't gonna work in plain English. I am also part of a small faith community 
Uh, we meet once a month, and it's a very important part of my life. I've had Father Joe Healy on these podcasts to talk about the future of small Christian communities and how to go about forming one for those who are interested, who don't feel that the institutional church is serving them, and they're looking for some other way to express their faith. So I do see a future in that, and it does give me hope. But well, that, I, I agree, and I, that's where I see the future. But I don't see it in more, you know, more meetings from the Vatican, more pronouncements, more policies, more statements, more, more um, uh, procedures and protocols. That's not going to solve the basic problem. It's a fundamental theological issue. It's a fundamental uh, issue of what is the church? You know, it's the people of God. Do we need to have? To follow the Lord, do we need to have a, a hierarchical governmental structure that's all about power? I don't think so. Tom, are you still on the Commission for the Protection of Children? No, no. I, all I was was a consultant, okay. and I, you know, I, I, they, they did unanimously vote me, allow me. They voted in favor of my becoming a consultant, in spite of who I am, and I'm not exactly. Uh, on the top of the list of the bishop's popularity scale, as you probably can know. <laughs> but no, it, it's it, to me, I, I wouldn't, even if they asked me, I wouldn't get involved because it's a waste of my time. You know, a complete waste of my time. I, I, I'm busy all the time, but I'm doing things in this area that I know are helping people or benefiting people. Right now I'm involved in in several of the states where the attorneys general are investigating the Catholic church. That's worthwhile because that's making a difference. And it's now, a power bigger than the church that's taken a look at it, that they can't turn off. But you know, what I understand is they can resolve the uh, penalizing and punishment of the abusers, but they can't fix what's going on. That's really up to us. Yeah. To, the, to the people of God and to find some way where we make our expression of our Christianity real in our own lives. I totally agree. And I, you know, looking back on this, I've been in deeply involved now for 35 years. It's changed my belief system totally, completely. What is your belief system now? Well, my belief system now, it doesn't include an institution that's a monarchy. I believe in a higher power, and I fundamentally believe in, in the, the concept of Christian community where people get together and try to follow the, the way of life that Christ gave us, to understand it and to follow it. But one that's non-judgmental, one that's uh, non-hierarchical, and that is basically what the primitive Catholic communities were. And we can go back to that. You know, there are 12-step groups all over the world, and that's how they operate. AA, Al-Anon, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, the whole nine yards. They function on a totally spiritual level, and that's the way they operate. Um, so I know I, that uh, but, you know, I, my own belief system, um, it could not have survived what I've seen and experienced. It could not have. Because Talk about that as we as we bring this show to a close. Because you said that once you met some of the victims, especially the younger ones, it changed your life. Yeah, it did. This thing went from being names on pieces of paper to me 35 years ago to human beings. 
real people. And I have seen and experienced and shared the incredible pain and loss that so many of them have experienced. And part of that was because of the sexual encounter that they had with the cleric. But the bigger part was the rejection and the dishonesty and the loss of trust in the institutional church, i.e. the bishops. When they were not treated and helped the way they expected and had been led to believe their whole life would happen to them. Uh, that's what, that's what, what shocked me and still does. You and your associates have written a book, Sex, Priests, and Secret Codes. Is that available? And if so, where? It's on Amazon. Um, I, I may still be in bookstores somewhere. I don't know. But it's on Amazon, I know. And it's on Amazon in, uh, uh, what do they call it, Kindle? It's on that format as well. And I think it's been translated into a couple other languages. What that book is, it's the only known history of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church that is based on the church's own official documentation. So it reaches back to the fourth century. Actually, the documentation goes beyond that to the first century. Since then, we found some more stuff, but uh, that's, that's as far back as it goes. Thomas Doyle, thank you so much for being on the show, for your openness and sharing of your experience. I, in, I support you in the work that you're doing and encourage you to keep it up. Don't stop. We need you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I can't stop. I'm committed. So. And to Compare our audience, if Pardon? you have anything that you want to say to the audience, uh, we invite the audience to call in on our voice messaging and leave a question if you have any for Tom, and we'll pass it on to him. Thank you so much. Thank you.